you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Our text today is in Exodus 20, verse number 15. It is the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. We're studying the Ten Commandments, and now we come to the Eighth. Like some other of the commandments, we might imagine that we ourselves are guiltless when it comes to this commandment, when in fact a closer examination reveals otherwise. As we've been doing, I give you some things to consider. They might seem desperate, but I hope at the end they will all fit together. So first of, the first thing to consider is what is stealing? It is the acquisition uh, by any unjust means. Martin Luther held to the assumption that the world is a system of thievery in which of all the sins that possess us, I think no irony intended, um, thievery is the most common. He wrote, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. Stealing is a widespread common vice, but people pay so little attention to it that the matter is entirely out of hand. If all who are thieves, though they are unwilling to admit it, were hanged on the gallows, the world would soon be empty and there would be a shortage of both hangmen and gallows. Uh, It's a bit harsh, uh, but let us consider what's involved here in this Eighth Commandment. Second thing to consider is its connection to the previous two. Uh, I've mentioned that the commandments are in fact connected. Uh, and what then is the connection between this commandment and the sixth and the seventh? You shall not kill. That is, it forbids the stealing of a person's life, a neighbor's life, which has been given to them by God as a gift. God has given life to your neighbor, and now you take it away, you steal, you are a thief. It is worth noting that among the capital crimes in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, which require the death penalty, is kidnapping. In Exodus 21, verse 16, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. You can't steal a person's life. You can, but you should not. In Deuteronomy 24, if a man is caught kidnapping one of his brother Israelites and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. One of the reformers equated theft to murder, and we'll see more on this as we go along. Then the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It forbids the stealing of another's wife uh, or husband, spouse, uh, to whom he or she is bound in marriage. Um, We saw when we looked at the commandment last week that it involves, it forbids all sexual activity outside of marriage. But I think it is stated the way that it is so that we would have a clear understanding that it is theft. It is stealing another person's spouse. Okay. The third thing to consider is the issue of ownership. Should we think of ourselves as owners or as stewards? We are told in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In Psalm 50, 
I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. We are creatures who live in God's good creation. And much of what we have has been given not simply to us as individuals, but to humanity in general. We have things in common like air, uh, water, sunshine. These are gifts from God. It is his world. And I think we get in trouble when we begin to think only in terms of ourselves that this is mine rather than this is what God has given to me that I am to take care of. Uh, Anything we have in our personal lives is gift and we are to care for it as stewards. Stewards who will one day have to give an account for what we have done with what God has given to our care as stewards. Theft fails to recognize that what has been taken from someone was actually given to that person as a gift. So the thief thinks, oh, I'm just taking from this person, when in fact they are stealing from God who has given into the care of this person this particular thing. But is it just taking, you know, breaking in, pickpocket, cracking a safe? I think that taking advantage of another is also a form of theft. And now we begin to unfold the full meaning the full nature of stealing. Again, we might think it's merely taking from another person, but it has been well argued that stealing may be seen in taking advantage of one's neighbor, whether in the market, you know, where business is transacted, you know, money for, or anything else for goods or labor. Taking into account the desires that shape our lives, we might imagine that the previous commandment on adultery is the most burdensome, and I think we would be wrong. The most difficult commandments are those that deal with stealing and lying, which is the next commandment, because they cut to the heart of the deceit upon which our lives are built, and we don't even realize it. How is it? How is it that our lives are built on deceit? We simply do not want to acknowledge that we are caught up in systems that make it impossible to discover how deeply implicated we are in theft and lying. Just as lying is a parasite, it's parasitic of the truth. And the way it is revealed is when you have people who are willing to tell the truth. In the same way, theft can only be known when there is a presumption of an alternative way to live and there are people who live that way. Because otherwise, if everyone's just stealing left and right and taking advantage of one another, we lose any sense of the impropriety, the wrongness, the sinfulness of theft. We have seen in the past that God's love, God's system of love is seen in giving and receiving. The world system is in fact that of taking and keeping. This is mine. And if I have to steal, if I have to take advantage, whatever I have to do to make sure it's mine, that's what I will do. And it's wrong. In our society in which we are viewed as consumers, consumption is a way of life. And we fail to recognize that oftentimes it's simply 
theft. To make this a little clearer, let's consider the next thing. What is the opposite of theft? As one person has put it, contrast is the mother of clarity. When we look at the opposite, we have a clearer picture of what we're talking about. And so it is with theft. And here we need to think in terms of the common good. That is, we have an obligation to help one another, to share with one another, to share with our neighbors. In our society, for example, we have parks. And the parks are there to be used by everyone. They are to be shared. They are for the common good. We have community centers. We have art and music. And these are things to be shared by the, by the population. Just a side note, it is true that people who produce art and music Tom, are to be compensated. They are to be paid for this. But something has happened in the way that suddenly a piece of art, which is to be enjoyed by all, is auctioned off for millions and millions of dollars and then kept in somebody's house where nobody else can see it. And then it is no longer something for the common good, but something, it's mine, something I have acquired. We may think of ownership, this painting is mine, rather than stewardship, which shows we're already in trouble. We see it as private, not public. We would miss the point. Several examples from case law, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, that illustrate this, how, how wrong we are sometimes about such things. In the Mosaic Law, it is not theft if, in fact, you go into an orchard and take some fruit and eat it. This is from Deuteronomy 24. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pluck kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. So you, you can go in and eat. That's fine. Don't take any home, okay? but you may enjoy it while you're there. On the other hand, what if it's your vineyard? What if it's your field of grain? This is, again, from Deuteronomy, the next chapter, 24. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over a branch a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, if you think about it, this sounds the opposite of what we think to be right. You know, if somebody comes into your vineyard, let's say an apple orchard here in California, an orange orchard, and they take fruit, we would say, thief, you're stealing, stop it. On the other hand, if somebody goes over their olive trees a second time or they've noticed they've dropped some fruit and they pick it up, we're like, this is a wise person. They're, they're making sure that they get the most out of what their field or their orchard has produced. We would be wrong. As one writer put it, the Bible is our standard of what constitutes theft, uh, not Adam Smith or Karl Marx. Um, yeah. The sixth thing to consider 
is the danger of wealth. And this tangentially ties into what we're talking about here. Being rich is not wrong, as we've seen in the past, but wealth brings with it particular dangers. The dilemma of wealth and death is dealt with in various passages in the Old Testament. In Psalm 49, do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. The idea of acquisition, this is mine and this defines who I am, is dangerous, as we find throughout Scripture. The teacher in Ecclesiastes writes of the futility of gaining possessions. And throughout the wisdom literature, we have the contrast between the fool and the wise man. The wise man who recognizes what is what and the fool who thinks that there is no God, or at least acts that way. In the life of Jesus, he told the parable of the rich man. Rich fool, this is in Luke 12. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The story is that one particular harvest season, this man had a bumper crop. Um, uh, Jesus and his listeners lived in a time and in a world in which the success, if you wish, of farming was dependent on many things beyond the owner's control. Unlike our world in which we have fertilizers, hybrid seed, mechanization, irrigation, um, in that world it depended on rain, good weather. And so in that sense it was still is, we just don't recognize it, in God's hand as to whether or not someone will have a good crop. This bumper crop that this rich man had was a gift from God. By the way, if you look at verse number 16 in Luke 12, uh, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He didn't, but the ground, God's creation, produced a good crop. Okay, It suggests Something that the former, that is the rich guy, cannot imagine, and that is that God, in fact, has been responsible for his wealth. His only consideration is, what am I going to do? I got so much stuff. What am I going to do? He's struggling with a happy dilemma. I have so much stuff. He has more money than he can spend. His facilities cannot hold the surplus. So what is a man to do? Contrary to what one might expect in that culture, he doesn't ask any his neighbors or anyone else what he should do. He does not weigh the problem that is within the life of the community. I had a good crop. Maybe the others did as well, but maybe they didn't. Maybe others need some of what I have. 
Instead, what we have is a solitary man talking to himself. And how sad is that? He enjoys being isolated from his neighbors and just talking about how wonderful life has been to him. They're my crops, he said. It's all about his achievement, his prosperity, and no hint of thanksgiving to God. Now, his reflex to store up surplus, I think, is not necessarily a bad one, given the fragile condition of life in that time and that place. There were famines regularly. Um, the sources tell of us of about a dozen famines during the New Testament period. This is something that happened fairly regularly. So if you have a bumper crop, you need, it's not a bad idea to save up for what's going to come around the corner. But there are other things to consider. And apparently this man has not considered that. He has one consideration. What am I going to do with all this stuff that I have? The root of the problem is he is a fool. This is not name-calling. This is someone who acts as though God does not exist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what this man is like. And his self-conversation doesn't lead to self-reflection. Instead, he's like, I'm just going to kick back and enjoy the good life. His efforts seemingly have made him self-sufficient, autonomous, and invulnerable, and none of these are true. Because, because this is the way he thinks. God has no place in his life. He lives as though God is not there. He's a practical atheist. He may actually believe in God, but he lives as though God does not exist. And as we find in many of the parables, there is this reversal at the end. He goes from being rich to dead. God does exist, and he knows what's going on. It is his world. He rules the universe in every aspect of it. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? We read this in the prayer of confession. You spend our lives gathering up wealth, and who will it go to? And so that night, he died. This night, your life will be demanded of you. Your life, which was given to you as gift, you have squandered. And this night, it will be demanded of you. He wasted it and is taken by the one who gave it. All that he possessed or imagined that he possessed, which was a gift from God, will be taken from him. And then the question is, who will get it? In a commencement uh, address given over a generation ago, the speaker said uh, to those who are graduating from medical school, you will go out of here and very likely you'll make a lot of money. One day you'll meet someone for whom that means very little. Then you will know how poor you are. It is not in the accumulation, the acquisition of things that we have gift or that we have riches. They are gifts from God, but they may in fact turn our heads the wrong way. 
which leads to the next point. What does James say about this? It's interesting. People have argued that the book of James is, in fact, uh, tied very much to what we find in uh, the law, but also in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in James 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wealth or the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and indulgence, self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. James accuses the rich of the following, hoarding wealth, failing to pay one's employers or workers. More money for me. None for you. It's all for me. Uh, Luxury and indulgence at the expense of others. This is the theft. Also not paying your workers is theft. And then at the end, murder. You have condemned and murdered innocent men. And remember the connection between the commandments. This eighth commandment is, in fact, tied to the sixth as well. Now we come to two issues. The first is the eighth commandment and case law. Um, And this is something that applies to the other commandments as well. I haven't talked about it yet, but we will at this point. Case law serves as the basis of all Mosaic law. So what are they? They are the specific applications of one or more of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the foundation. But as we've seen, they aren't simply about our observable actions. They speak also of the attitudes of the heart. Okay. Well, you can't go to court and judge somebody's heart. You judge their actions. So after Exodus 20, we have, through Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, laws of observable behavior. And these are based on the Ten Commandments. The case laws are necessary in order to focus our concern on specific violations. These case laws also allow us to understand the breadth of the fundamental principles found in Scripture. So in the Ten Commandments, we have the foundation of all law. In some cases, some instances, I should say, some case laws don't simply come from one commandment, but may come from others. So, for example, in Leviticus, which when people are reading through the Bible, they find rather tedious, all the sacrificial stuff and blood here and there and all that kind of stuff. Where does that come from in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. God is the only one the Israelites were to worship, and this is how they are to worship him. Well, now that we come to the Eighth Commandment, what, what are the case laws that flow out of this? quite nervous at this point about it but it is tithing you know how much I dislike talking about money 
But in fact, it is the giving of a tenth of what one has earned or gained uh, in a period of time. If we hold that all things are God's, and he has committed these things to us as stewards, then we are, in the words of one commentator, to pay rent. I don't know that I'm completely comfortable with that concept, but this is what he writes. God delegates stewardships to mankind in, all, in terms of a leasehold lease contract. Men owe him a tithe of his legitimate return, or as his legitimate return. They are required to pay God representatively by paying their tithe to the church. But men do not want to pay God this rental fee. They want autonomous ownership without any obligation to pay rent. Paying a tithe to God is a public admission that they are not the sovereign owners, not the autonomous creators. Paying a rent or sharing a crop means that they are subordinate. And Israel was instructed very specifically in various case laws in this regard. In Leviticus 27, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. That's his. The whole earth is his, but he has committed a part of it to each one of us, and a portion of it is to be returned to him. In Deuteronomy 14, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows, who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Failure to do this is called theft. The end of the Old Testament in Malachi 3, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. And at this point, you may be thinking, okay, here comes the push for money. Uh, you guys need to tithe and all that. But not at all. What we see as in the example of Israel, we find by application in the New Testament that tithes are to be paid to two entities, the church and the state. The one we call a tithe to the church the other we call a tax to the state. In Romans 13, in which Paul calls us to be obedient to the state, he says, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I think one thing you know, where people tend to freak out when it comes to such matters is it is, in fact, important to note that there's a limit. So the tithe is a very specific amount. It is the one-tenth, okay? Now, there appears to have been uh, more than one tithe to the Israelites. In fact, there were three tithes, we think. So it would be 20% plus three and a third percent every three years they were supposed to give, and that's for the fatherless, the widows, the aliens, those who are in need. Um, but it is limited. It is limited. 
we find an example of giving being stopped, that there was a limit set, that's enough. And this is when they were going to build the tabernacle. Exodus 35, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord, everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Next chapter. This stuff is coming in. Uh, and people are building uh, Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability by the way, gift, he had given them this ability to know how to carry out all the work in constructing the sanctuary or to do the work just as the Lord commanded then Moses commanded Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent the word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing more. Living in an age in which uh, it seems that people are assaulted by pleas for money from religious organizations or ministries, I think it's very it's very comforting to know that in fact the tithe is something that is limited and we find a time when the Israelites were told, that's it, no more, you've given enough. The reality is God wants more than our money. In Micah 6, a famous verse, he has showed you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's toward the end of the Old Testament. But back in Deuteronomy, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Yeah, I think there's unnecessary worry about money. There's something more important and that is that we would walk humbly before God. Well, people sort of groan when they hear about tithing or giving to church, but they also groan about paying their taxes, in part because since World War I, uh, civil governments have found that 10% is simply not enough for them to carry out the various programs that they have created. As one author put it, the modern state is a thief. There is no absolute sovereignty in any person or institution. But don't tell the state that. Don't tell the modern nation state that. One more thing here. I would argue, it's my opinion, but I think that in learning to give, in learning not to steal, 
to give the tithe to God. In a sense, it, it opens our hands. And that if we are willing, in fact, to give the tithe, that our, hope, our hearts are open to giving to those in need. That in a sense, tithing is almost a way of priming the pump, not for the church, but for us to give charity to those, to our neighbors, to those who are in need. Because we've, we've developed the practice of giving. Otherwise, we just take and keep, and this is theft. Okay, the last point, and this will be uh, a bit long. What about Jesus and theft? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, did he ever talk about stealing? Well, not directly, but indirectly, and perhaps so indirectly you may have trouble connecting the dots, but I hope to help you with that. He addressed how we view our possessions how we view the necessities of life. This is an extended passage. It's in Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad or evil, uh, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Actually, much more valuable than they. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life or a single cubit to his height? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This passage can be divided into four sections. First of all, about not storing up treasure here on earth. Secondly, about being generous. The evil eye is translated in the NIV as being stingy in the book of Proverbs. Serving God, not money. And lastly, not being anxious about the day-to-day things, food and clothing. And in each of these sections, Jesus gives us alternatives. So treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. Uh, Light or darkness, God or money, uh, our bodies or the kingdom of heaven. 
sounds so binary, we kind of flinch. It's sort of black and white. We'd like there to be some gray area in there, you know, you know where we didn't have to make it so, so different. And yet this is how Jesus spoke. Since we are to store up treasure in heaven, not on earth, and since we are to be generous, that is full of light, our eyes full of light, not selfish, and since we are to serve God, not money, therefore we are not to worry. When Jesus spoke about treasure, we might have the idea of someone who is like the rich man, who has a lot of stuff that he puts you know, he hides it away or it's in a safe. It's in the bank somewhere that it is safe. Uh, but in the last part, he's talking about the day-to-day things, food, clothing, shelter. And I think, uh, in a real sense, the people who were listening to Jesus might have probably paid more attention here than they did to the part about treasure, because in Galilee, not many people, if any, had any treasure most of them were day laborers. They got paid at the end of each day. Uh, those who worked as farmers, you know, they, they grew a crop and then it was taken to Jerusalem for the rich people down there. Um, yeah, this is the part that really, this is where the rubber meets the road for them. The idea of the day-to-day necessities. Food, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? And where are we going to sleep tonight? The farmers, by the way, who worked the fields usually were always in debt. They were sharecroppers. And so uh, one might think, and I just mentioned earlier about rich people, but oftentimes poor people suffer from the same disease simply without the money, without the possessions. So people might say, if only I had fill in the blank, then my life would be good. Uh, whether you have it or you don't, that's still the focus. That's you know, still that's what gives me a sense of security. So here Jesus deals with the situation in Galilee directly. The basics of life. Your life, what you will eat or drink, your body, what you will wear. Just as earthly possessions can be idols which force out God, so earthly needs can become idols become a source of worry, and they force out God, and we become distrustful. Rabbi Hillel was known to say, the more possessions, the more cares. I would suggest that the fewer possessions, the more cares as well. One could argue that no matter your economic state, anxiety is always nearby. That is to say, it is the natural human tendency to worry about money and is shared by the rich and the poor alike. Those who are affluent have the ability to control their environment to a certain degree, uh, can uh, pay for transportation, for medical care, for a variety of things. Um, But we tend not to think of ourselves as being affluent. So, if in fact we are affluent, does the passage in Matthew 6 touch us? Do we worry about whether or not we're going to eat? Or do we think, you know, what am I going to have tonight? I'm going to have Mexican, Thai, you know, what, what kind of food am I going to have? Our worries with regard to food are not if we have food, but where and when. 
what will we have? Will we prepare it ourselves? Will somebody else prepare it for us? Uh, and our clothes, you know, worrying about clothes isn't, you know, in Galilee, people usually had two sets of clothes, if that. We have more than that, so what am I going to wear today in our worries? But in the process, we are unconsciously violating the Eighth Commandment. Our focus is not to be on what we can get, on what we have, okay? Because everything we have comes from God as a gift. We are to be good stewards of it, but beyond that, we are to share with those who are in need. I remember some years ago reading, they had a series, uh, and it was about uh, illegal immigrants coming from Central America through Mexico into the United States. But it didn't deal with the, our border, but in southern Mexico. And it told the story of one old woman who was quite poor. But she felt such compassion for the people who were hopping on trains trying to make it their way up through Mexico that instead of eating a, whor- a whole tortilla herself, she would tear it in half. She would eat the half, and then she would go out to the train track and give it to somebody there. Her thought was not simply of herself, but of those in need. And even when it comes to basic necessities, we're not talking luxuries here, we're talking basic necessities. It isn't simply about what can I get, what do I have, how can I hold on to it, but how can I share In Ephesians 4, Paul wrote, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work at doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. As one writer put it, what? Thieves in church? Yeah, we're all sinners, okay? And there were people apparently in the Ephesian church who had formerly been thieves. That's how they made their living. And Paul says, Stop it. Don't do that. Don't do it any longer. But you can't just stop. You have to put something in its place. And so he says, instead, you need to go to work. Work with your hands. And why do you work? So that you can have something to share with others. See, because otherwise, if you just work to accumulate, accumulate, then you're still stealing in a sense. You're still violating the Eighth Commandment. Living where we do in human history, geographically, economically, socially, intellectually, we face temptations, I think, that our brothers and sisters in the past have not faced, particularly because of technology, because of the belief or the assumption that all human problems can, in fact, be solved, that human, humans can, in fact, figure things out. This is where Jacques Ellul, his whole thing on technique, it's all a matter of breaking it down into steps and we can solve every problem. The belief as humans is that in fact we can solve any problem even if it means taking advantage of other human beings. We can grow more food, we can supply more water, we can produce more clothing. We can engineer a solution to any problem you can throw our way. It's a false view of reality. It's exemplified by what the authors of the first whole earth catalog put. Now that we know we are gods, we might as well get good at it. 
that seems rather audacious, and yet I think it speaks more truth in people of how people think than we realize. It's a false view of what it means to be human. In the Lord's Prayer, we're given a model of prayer, a part of which is, give us this day our daily bread. Do we still pray that? Can we still pray that? Or do we look at a refrigerator full of food or cabinets full of food that God has given us, by the way, it is gift, but have we recognized that? It is almost as though a person who says, give me this day my daily bread, is somebody who's out on the streets, someone who doesn't have a job, someone who's homeless, someone who's very poor. And yet the reality is this is what we are all to pray. Have we forgotten that everything we have is a gift from God? Have we forgotten that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it? Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a world in which we are encouraged to think primarily of ourselves first, and if we have time for others. I think we can't blame the culture or the society, we can blame our own hearts. That it is a part of us that wants to accumulate, to acquire, to have things not to share. We fail to recognize that everything we have comes from you. It is a gift. And it is a gift not simply for us to hang on to for dear life, but to open our hands. And I think in the practice of tithing, our hands open up, and then we think of those in need, our neighbors, family, friends, those who have needs. It doesn't seem that that's encouraged anymore. Now the state tells us that they'll take care of those in need. They'll take care of the sick. And we have forgotten the history of your church in which it was Christians, the churches who built hospitals and orphanages and schools. They built places for those in need. I think we've sort of given that up because the state has taken it over. May we, each one of us, in our daily lives, first of all, be thankful that you've given us our daily bread. But then look around, find those who are in need, those you bring across our path, that we might be able to share with them the bounty that you have given to our care. We are grateful for all you've given us. You have certainly given us far more than we deserve. But it isn't just for us. You've put us where we are. You've surrounded us with the people around us. You will bring people across our path. May our hands be open, our hearts be open, our eyes be open to help those who are in need.
We thank you for your generosity. We have so much, and we are grateful to you. We're grateful that you've called us together today to worship you. And as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We thank you for your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.